You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. I'm Johnston, and this week I am joined by Gareth. Hello. And uh, I've I've been looking forward to this, actually. Uh, We spend a lot of time zeroing in on certain series or certain doctors or releases or whatever. It's very rare that we actually just step back and have a look at the big finish monthly range which was with us for over 20 years and produced some rather excellent stuff um so yeah it, it, i kind of feel as though on this podcast we kind of miss the monthly range a bit even though there is so much of it um so we're going to focus on two trilogies today uh, i said to gareth pick two trilogies and i think you've picked two good ones actually two sort of really interesting ones to talk about one of them was just being lazy because it was the next on my list. But I'll take it. Yeah, so we've, we've just kind of helped hurry up your <laughs> listening, really, haven't yeah. we? Uh, but that's fine. Um, so uh, the spoiler warning uh, this week is for the Older Perry arc. We're going to be looking at the Older Perry trilogy that Big Finish brought out in, I think it was 2014. Um, it also went on into a box set, but we're not quite covering the box set today, but there is still danger that we might discuss it, so be warned. Uh, the other one is the Locum Doctors trilogy that Big Finish released to mark their 200th monthly Doctor Who story. So it was, I think it was 198, 199, and then Secret History, the finale, as it were, was 200, if I remember correctly. Um, so let's let's dive straight in. Let's talk first of all then about Older Perry, um, which, as an idea, I think this is great. Like we know that Perry's sort of ending was pretty inconclusive in the TV series. We saw one thing, but no, another thing happened to her, and it was kind of just left there. So I guess it was kind of an obvious thing to do: revisit. Perry have the sixth doctor revisit Perry later on in her life after she's left him and married King Yukarnos and presumably been deafened by Brian Blessed shouting. Um, so we we go into this with what I think's quite a a fun little story and a really good way of reintroducing the character. Uh, that's the Widow's Assassin. So talk to us about the Widow's Assassin, Gareth. The Doctor turns up at. The planet where Yukarnos lives, the name of which escapes me, and he wants to basically catch up with Perry because he's missed the wedding. He was not invited for some reason. He's cross about this. And Perry gives him a very cool reception. 
and it turns out King Iconos is dead and has been for a while. And yeah, Perry won't give him the time of day. He ends up in a cell for five years, which is sort of strangely Moffat-esque, I would say, the kind of concept of this doctor being kind of montaged away for a few years and then it just gets more moffaty as we find out he wasn't just kind of <clears throat> excuse me sitting in the uh, the jail cell for all that time and it turns out there's lots of kind of internecine sort of politics going on in this palace where perry lives um which is all a bit curse of peladon kind of vaguely but it, you know that's a compliment it's, it's sort of a funny kind of historical comedy set in space and the the funny yeah. thing is is really the main thing to take away from this because it's nev fountain and you know he's he's not just a, a comedy writer so to speak but he is capable of writing very funny stuff and um this is a pretty standout example so there's tons of comic set pieces in it some of it you know works a little more broadly than other bits there's a couple of guards in the castle called literally guard one and guard two because their families are so committed to the guarding profession that they just gave up calling them anything else um yeah it's it's incredibly colorful as a story it's working very well with the dr perry relationship but i have questions about how it handles that but um, what did you think? I'm assuming you're a big fan. I yes, I am a fan of this one. I, I think that you've you've hit the nail on the head by calling it quite moffaty, hmm. actually. Um, however, I'd also sort of say that it was quite Douglas Adamsy in places, and I think it's probably fair to say that Nev Fountain is the closest we have to Douglas Adams in terms of people that are still actively writing Doctor Who. Um, it, it's it's a name that I kind of always... I'm always pleased to see it on a list of writers when a new release is announced and that kind of thing. And he's he's definitely one big Finnish writer that I'd like to see make the jump to telly if such a thing were ever to happen. Did you ever read the Mervyn Stone books? Uh, to my shame, I have Oh, not. they're worth it. Um, yeah, there's a trilogy of kind of nerdy detective stories that I, I'm pretty sure is only published through Big Finish, but, you know, they're easy enough to get hold of. Um, and one of them is set at a sci-fi convention. And if you've ever been to one, it's uncanny how accurate it is. But uh, it also involves murders. But no, those are great. And just another example of stuff he is good at. Yes, Um but yeah, I think I think this is perhaps the archetypal Nev Fountain Doctor Who story. I think most of the other stuff he's done, some way, in some way, riffs on ideas or themes that we see in this one. Um, that being said, the word Omega has just flashed into my head to completely contradict what I've what I've said. But um, yeah, I, I think it's comedic thinking man's Doctor Who is what I'd say Nev Fountain um, produces and I, I do really enjoy it and like I say all of those strengths are in this story I do love the guard one guard two thing and I love the idea that pretty much every character that isn't Perry in this story is actually the Doctor just in a disguise and all that kind of thing it, it's it's a great deal of fun and it's it does sort of 
take some steps towards looking at the Doctor and Perry's relationship and the aftermath of Mind Warp and all that kind of thing. But it it's mostly concerned with just being a, a pretty fun Doctor Who adventure. Yeah, I mean, it must have been really fun for them to do because Colin and Nicola both get to play uh, three or four characters, I think, basically. I mean, with Perry, it's it's more a case of she's sort of inhabited by three or four different people. But um, yeah, both of them get to really be fun and, and have fun in it. And it must have been, you know, quite enticing for Nicola Bryant to be like, now nah, we're going to do something slightly different. Yeah, and it, I know that um, obviously Nev Fountain and Nicola Bryant are an item, so that kind of, it does add an extra sort of jokey element to the whole thing as well. Yeah, I mean, you get the impression that, uh, and it, it's, it feels not too appropriate to kind of speculate this, but it feels like he reckons, well, I'm going to write Perry stuff because I know Nicola really well. So I don't know if he would consider himself to be like the Perry guy when it comes to writing things, but he also did Perry and the Piscon Paradox, which is a very complex, similarly so, actually, uh, in that it kind of goes back on its own action a few times, uh, Companion Chronicle, which I'm pretty sure lands on the idea that Perry has multiple futures. So this one probably fits into that. Yeah, absolutely. And he also did a, I'm trying to remember its name, it was Conflict Theory, which was in the the Sixth Doctor and Perry box right, set that yeah. kind of follows on this trilogy, uh, which is, again, it's another story that kind of has a, a neat little twist at the end. Yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's sort of quite funny, addresses the relationship between Perry and the Doctor. And yeah, it, it, there's definitely kind of a nice running Nev Fountain theme in this mm. room. And if, as it's not actually a concluded arc yet, considering that this story is nine years old, we haven't concluded the arc that it started. I do like to think that if Big Finish were to revisit this sort of era they've created, it would be Nev Fountain that writes the finale, finishes it off, and gives the Doctor and Perry their sort of final definitive goodbye. Well, that's that's an interesting thing, actually, because that's the question of um, kind of what is this arc trying to achieve? And that's probably something that we'll get into in a sec on the other two. But uh, in Widow's Assassin, I think it's worth pointing out that Nicola Bryan, and I think probably Colin Baker as well, thought that Perry's death was quite an interesting way to go. You know, there's a thing on the DVD and the Blu-ray where they, they have a little commentary over the uh the happy ending scene which is like a little bit of footage of perry and yukanos which incredibly i think has a big pink heart outline on it which is just the most crass thing imaginable but um yeah they, i think they they preferred perry getting killed off in a kind of adric way where it's like well if you've got to go then that's pretty interesting so part of me is quite surprised that they went back to this because you know perry being married to yukanos is probably nobody's idea of a good idea for, for Perry because they have, you know, it's just insane. Um, but the story kind of goes to pains to distance Perry from it. So, I mean, it turns out it wasn't really Perry. So she was kind of mind warped, if you will, uh, into, oh. <laughs> there we are, uh, into, into Lord Kiv. So they kind of go, all right, all right, Perry did go off with Yukanos, but it wasn't really Perry. So it's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. So I kind of imagine that's like an olive branch to sort of Nicola to be like, we're going to do it, but it's not that. Um, which 
I'm fine with, you know, I would equally be fine with them leaving it where it was, but you know, that makes sense. But then the story goes a further layer down and says that it wasn't Kiv. It was a sort of imaginary figure from the doctor's past. And that bit I'm not too keen on because I feel like at that stage, the story's sort of drifting away from Perry and it's more about the doctor. So it's sort of like, this is firstly kind of the doctor's fault because this is something that was in his mind. And it's something that controlled Perry against her will. And yeah, then we get into the subject of what's actually happened to Perry, which is that she's lost years of her life, hence older Perry, but really like five years older, I think it's, it's I don't yeah. think it's that much older. Um, <clears throat> yeah, she's lost these years of her life and I don't know that at any point we're really going to examine that. I mean, probably that comes back in the box set. I can't quite recall. It's been a while since I heard it. But yeah, she has a pretty rubbish time in this and it doesn't quite deal with it, I think, because it's trying to address other stuff. So it's trying to say, here's what actually happened in Mind Warp, right? And it also explains why the Doctor was behaving so weird, which is a little bit like, I'm not sure we needed to go into that, but okay, fine. It's nice to have an explanation. Um, and it even resolves the flip thing from uh, Scavenger. So the cliffhanger from that, the sort of literal cliffhanger, really, where Flip is plummeting to her death, they kind of write that off in a quick line of dialogue towards the end where the Doctor is saying, oh, yeah, that's all sorted. Um, I kind of redirected her so she just landed in the ocean. I'd completely forgotten this since the last time I listened to this story, right? So I was just thinking... God, what a callous person where he's hanging around with Perry when he should be off rescuing Flip. But he's like, ah, oh, no, no, all sorted, all done. So sorted I feel that like, one out already. Yeah, I feel like as the story progresses, it takes on a bit too much and kind of gets a bit distracted from where I think it should be, which is focusing on how's Perry dealing with this? What does this mean to Perry? Because at the end of the story, she goes back with him and ostensibly picks up where they left off. I mean, she's a few years older, but, you know, it's basically mysterious planet Doctor and Perry. Here we go again. And you kind of think, well, this is why we need more of the arc, because I want to know, like, well, what does Perry want out of this? Because I was re-watching, and I'm sorry, we will progress in a sec. I was re-watching um, season 22 the other day, because I am appallingly slow at getting through these box set Blu-rays. And I was kind of thinking, Perry just seems to have a horrible time, right? I mean, the, the season 22 Doctor is always yelling at her and t calling her names and things. And you just think, you know, she's turned into a bird at one point. <laughs> and, you know, Cybermen are threatening to murder her and all this stuff. And you just think, God, this is not fun for her. Like, she has not come aboard the TARDIS for a laugh, like Rose or something. She's here because basically she hasn't got anything else. So I really kind of want to examine that a bit. Like, is she at a point in her life where basically this is all she, this is the closest thing she's got to normal. So she's just like, I guess I'll carry on with that then. Even though, as we'll establish from the next couple of stories, it continues to be a pretty horrible time for her. So I just, I want them to examine that. And maybe they did a bit in the box set. We might have to save that for another time, but... I don't feel like they really examined it even then. <laughs> I feel like they, they, they let the Doctor off too lightly for what kind of time Perry has in these, in just Doctor Who in general, to be quite honest. From what I remember, the first three stories of the box set don't acknowledge this at all and it 
Mm. Really, it could just be Perry season 22 or wherever. Yeah. And then that conflict theory, the final, the Nev Fountain story, kind of does start to address it. But then it turns out that the Doctor and Perry addressing it was all a big plan to defeat the bad guy. So all the conversations that were had kind of didn't really amount to anything. So it's... It it feels like it's still in limbo, and it's, yeah. it's and you know we we mentioned Flip as well, and they kind of, if you'll pardon the Simpsons reference, they kind of did Poochie died on his way back to yeah. his home planet with Flip, <laughs> but then brought back older Flip in a story a hook that is still unresolved. Now, okay, there's reasons mm-hmm. we've not had a Flip story for a few years now, but yeah. it's it, it kind of feels like the latter end of the Sixth Doctor's life, or certainly the Sixth Doctor post-trial of a Time Lord, is kind of left wide open now. There are sort of fairly yeah. big gaps there. There's the older Perry gap, which is unresolved. There's the Flip and Constance gap, which is essentially two storylines or two companions mm. stories to resolve. And then we've got... Um, the ongoing Hebe stuff with Mel as well. You know, we know that Mel's there when the Sixth Doctor regenerates, therefore we know that Hebe stuff is towards the end of his life. Yeah. But that is, it's still wide open, but at least we know that storyline is being continued in the next few months, whereas there's there's no news on, particularly on Perry at all at the moment. And they've no. even done a Perry trilogy set before trial of a time lord um since since this i think it might even have been since the box set mm. oh, no, maybe not maybe it was before the box set but nevertheless sure. it's, this is this is all still sort of up in the air and it, it does kind of feel like they don't really know what they want to do with it and i i want to know where it goes perry is quite a significant dot well she is she's a companion She's with the Sixth Doctor for the vast majority of his run yeah. on TV. And, you know, this is a character that we, we know and love and want to see. I want a happy ending for her. I think she deserves it. I mean, dear God, she had to marry Brian, blessed, and that wasn't even her, you know? Just no yeah. part of that made sense. Good Lord, guys. Shall we, shall we move on? Yes, let's, let's venture on to the next story then. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Perry deciding that travelling with the Doctor might not be so bad after all ends up uh, during the Daleks' occupation of Earth. She was wrong. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, that's always going to be a barrel of laughs. So Masters of Earth is our next story, um, which is basically Dalek invasion of Earth is happening and the Doctor can't stop it because... He already has. So they kind of just have to endure whatever happens in this one. Um, And that's... It's an interesting idea. It's an interesting place to start. So what do you think of that one? Well, in the best possible way, it's kind of fan bait because everybody loves the Dalek Invasion of Earth. And quite right, it's great. But um, it's got this kind of World War II thing about it this kind of era of living through this awfulness that we can you know somehow empathize with even though none of us were there um and it's a fascinating idea and i I really like the the concept that the doctor can't 
do anything. Um, I think it leaves the story in a bit of an awkward position for a while, not for the whole thing, but you kind of end up thinking, well, nothing can really happen then. And they sort of just head for the Orkneys because they've got this uh, haven that they're heading for. Um, And, you know, stuff happens on the way, including yet more horribleness for Perry, uh, where Varga plants, which were not in Dalek Invasion of Earth, but, you know, fan bait, like I said, um, she gets stung by a Varga. And we know from the Hartnell years that that's basically a death sentence. Like, you're going to turn into a big homicidal plant, which is somehow, well, it's a strange image, even in the Dalek uh, master plan when that came up. Like, it's not literally like a crinoid that runs up and eats you. It's literally a plant that wants to pick up a gun or something. It's a, it's a weird one. So, yeah, yeah she, uh, she gets vargified a bit, and she has to go through all of this stuff, and the Doctor has to kind of de-varga her. And the story kind of trundles on a bit, and then eventually lands on, I think, quite an interesting idea which is that there's another class of robo-men who are the kind of zombie human slaves of the Daleks in Invasion of Earth. And there's a version of that where you're basically, you know, fully functioning person. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what what they are, really. I think they're just very strong humans. Um and this is a really good idea, but I think the problem with the story for me, apart from that kind of in action, where it can't really do very much, is that I wanted that um, elite Robomen idea to come in a bit earlier, because I think it's mostly a part four kind of thing. So when we get to the end of the story, and it turns out that there's a sort of darker side to one of the characters they've met along the way, who's a kind of positive figure in the human resistance on, on Earth. Um the doctor kind of decides, right, well, even though she seems, you know, her loyalties have kind of gone back and forth and we've landed on, she's probably all right. I'm going to basically sell her out to the Daleks a bit because I don't trust her. And his reasoning is all based on what this whole elite robomen situation is. And listening to it the other day, I mean, it wasn't the first time I'd heard it, but I'd forgotten all this robomen stuff. Um, it felt a bit too much like a guess. And like, obviously, because of, you know, <laughs> the writers of the story understand their own intentions. Obviously, he's correct within the story. But it just feels a little bit like, I don't think there was enough backing that up for him to be like, um, well, basically, he reckons the the humans are going to end up as bad as the Daleks, in a sense. Um, and that is fascinating but I don't think there's enough to support it. So I think this is a this is a very entertaining story, partly because it's set in this era that, you know, fans are just quite attracted to, but I think it could have been organised a bit better and, and those ideas could have been threaded through it a bit more and it would have felt more like a payoff. As it is, it, it feels a bit like they were kind of killing time a bit and went, oh, that would be good and kind of swerve off there towards the end. I mean, it, it's it's very much, let's put the Sixth Doctor and Perry into a 60s Doctor Who story. Mm. Not only is it in the setting of a 60s Doctor Who story, 
you've got things like them being separated from the TARDIS and you've got, right, yeah. as you mentioned, the Varga plants and that kind of thing. And it spends a lot of time doing that. It spends a lot of time going, look at all the 60s things that are happening. <laughs> and then, like you say, the, it, it, its own plot comes along later on, almost like an afterthought. Mm. I think to an extent it works. I think that it is nice to kind of play in that Dalek invasion of Earth sandpit for a little bit and then realise that something slightly different is going on. Um, but I, I agree, it, it's there's that kind of balance and maybe it just doesn't quite hit that. Maybe it doesn't quite get that right. It's very, I mean, it is very satisfying. I think it's, it's kind of uh, solid, you know, uh, it, when I was a kid, I would have absolutely lapped this up. So I, I think this is a kind of, younger Doctor Who fan when you're kind of more interested in the the grisly things that actually happen in the story not so much in how they affect the characters I think that's probably something you know when you when you become a an old fogey that's that's the stuff that interests us now but um yeah as I was a I think this is something that would probably be really on point for a kind of younger fan yeah absolutely and uh it, it's it's the kind of thing big finished does relatively often but it's also the kind of thing big finish does quite well yeah um that kind of let's just play with continuity let's let's do something familiar let's have the sixth doctor in a first doctor situation oh and there's and oh, yeah I, sorry. I, I, say, I quite like that i think that's quite fun i was gonna say um there's just a little production detail that i really like which is uh it might just be me imagining it but i'm pretty sure the music kind of Obviously, it's doing a sort of 80s who kind of thing, but it also occasionally leans towards Dalek Empire. So it sounds a bit like that yeah. now and again, because it's a similar situation where, you know, Susan Mendes and co, they have to kind of just suck it up, basically. They're just stuck in this terrible Dalek situation, and it's like, tough. You've got to just deal with it. So it's kind of an interesting little cross-pollination there. I don't know if that was intentional, but um, I really like Dalek Empire, and that's it was nice to kind of go, we're in similar territory in a good way. And I think Dalek Empire is meant to be sort of more inspired by 60s Daleks and 60s Dalek stories. Yeah. These are the the empire-building 60s Daleks, not the sort of smash-and-grab 80s Daleks. They're crafty and a bit Um, weird, and I like it when they're like that. Um, it, it does kind of it, it it throws a bit of a different dimension to them because in some ways 60s Daleks are totally different to any other Daleks when they disappear at the end of season 4 and don't come back till season 9 they come back really really changed really really different mm. um, just in kind of the way they work and that the sort of simplicity really that comes with the Daleks in the, they're, they're tanks that kill things that aren't Daleks and build empires. That's that's what 60s Daleks are. Mm. And I, I quite like that. Uh, and it, it is nice to sort of see that represented here and revisited here. Yeah. Shall we mooch on over to the Rani Elite? Why not? Yes. Why not? Um, so I, I quite like this one. I think this is a pretty good sort of basic concept it is 
a rematch with the Rani for both the Doctor and Perry. Oh, you've just spoiled the episode uh, one cliffhanger. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, it's a rematch with a mystery villain oh. who will be revealed at the end of part Please one. Please don't look at the title. Uh, for the Sixth Doctor and Perry. Uh, so, yes, this is the mystery villain elite. Um <laughs> I really like the fact that they've put the mystery... I'm going to call her the Rani yeah, yeah. now. I really like the fact that they've put the Rani into um, an academic setting. I think the Rani as kind of a, a dodgy uni professor is a pretty it's a pretty neat concept and it's sort of a really good starting point. I suppose the big question is, does it kind of... Does it do something with that? Does it kind of take that somewhere? What do you think? Um, well, I think you're absolutely right that it's it seems like a no-brainer to kind of have the Ronnie in that kind of context. Um, and the Ronnie's one of those characters who there's there's really very little of her. You know, she's like barely up from the terrible Zodin on and in terms of like, did Doctor Who even do anything with her? Um, but, you know, I, I thought that her scheme was quite clever. I liked the idea of her kind of having a sort of mercenary service where she's effectively renting out human bodies to older people who can kind of pay to have their life force moved on. And in a true Rani way, it doesn't quite work. Um, I thought it was a bit odd in that it feels quite small fry for her. So it's not a very... Unless I missed something, she's not trying to achieve anything particularly grand here. This feels more like she's trying to make a buck, maybe to finance something else. Because um, you think, well, why does she care about swapping people's brains around? But, um, you know, can't, I can't deny it's something that she would, you know, absolutely be capable of doing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I do enjoy the story, but it, it leaves me with not very much to say. Because it's uh, a pretty straightforward kind of gambit, really. She's got this plan. Um, yeah, and we have to wait a little while to find out it's her. But I do enjoy the setting. I think, again, uh, it's another one where Nicola Bryant, three in a row now, gets to have a kind of out-of-body experience, which, you know, has a massive plus in that it gives the actor something interesting to do. So, like, in the first one, like we said, she does, like, three or four parts for various reasons. In the second one, she's basically taken over by a murderous plant for a bit. And in this one, uh, she swaps minds for a while. Um, and I'd be very interested to know, and to be honest, maybe I should have listened to the behind the scenes when I was re-listening to these the other day because I cr kind of crammed them. Um, maybe they explain this, but I, it feels very themed that Perry keeps having these out-of-body experiences in this trilogy where, uh, you know, dreadful things happen to her and she's just got no control over it at all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, what do you think? I mean, I, I, as we've established, <laughs> sadly, I, I can't think of a lot to say about the story itself. I mean, I think it's, it's Perry's lot, really, isn't it, mm. to be taken over, transformed whatever you will um it happens to her quite a lot and it's i guess it's just i guess it's an obvious thing to do you know you're writing a perry story what you're going to have happen well perry should be taken over because perry always gets taken over by something so maybe that's where they were going mm -hmm. um it's 
I mean, yeah, you know, the, like you say, it's pretty small fry for the Rani. She's just kind of doing it for the sake of doing it, really. Make a quick book, whatever it is. Um, obviously, she ends up in prison and her being in prison is all part of a big ingenious plan when Planet of the Rani comes along in a few trilogies' time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it it's kind of like just a day in the life of the Rani, but that meddlesome doctor's turned <laughs> up to ruin it all again. How did you feel about um, Siobhan uh, Redmond? Um, I... I didn't really feel anything about her, uh, which isn't necessarily a good thing. It, it's I wasn't sat there going, oh, my God, this is an amazing alternative new take on the character. But I wasn't sat there thinking, oh, this is really bad. She's dreadful. It's She comes in and plays the Rani as the Rani. She essentially has the same personality as the Kato Mara regeneration. Uh, which is fine because the master has carried personalities across regenerations. And in fact, really, the doctor seems to be the only time lord that does radically change um, <laughs> upon death. So it's, yeah, it's, she does the job and I have no problem with it at all. I, I listen to it and at no point do I think this isn't the Rani because. It is. She mm. is. She, she does that job really well. I um I don't dislike the performance, but it. I do think there's a subtle. Well, there's a, there's a marked difference where she's a lot more kind of calm and collected than than the other one. Uh, I watched Mark of the Rani the other day and was struck by how good Kate Amara is in it. Uh, because the Rani, you know, she kind of runs the gamut from uh, from that to dimensions in time. So her performance, you know, sometimes it's incredibly campy. Like time in the Rani is just the campus thing in the universe. Just, you know, she's pretending to be Bonnie Langford and all of that. Um, and the character in Mark of the Rani is just this very angry but very competent scientist. And that kind of annoyance, because the master's in the story, which, you know, is sort of a flaw of the story. But she reacts against it and she's constantly like, oh, for God's sake, why do I have to put up with this imbecile? Um, and I kind of missed that quality with this. And that's not Siobhan Redmond's fault. I mean, the character is just in a different element now. But there's so little kind of Rani stuff that things like how kind of aggravated Kate Amara seemed sort of inform what the character is as far as we know it. So to not have that, left me a little bit adrift sometimes because I'd be kind of like, well, I, I get that it's the Rani, but I feel like something's not there. And I think if we just had more Rani stories, then, you know, you could have more light and shade. So, you know, I know there's another one. I have heard Planet of the Rani a while ago, but um, yeah, I basically, I feel like for all that fans talk about the Rani and it's a very popular kind of, oh, is that character going to turn out to be the Rani? Like, Let's let's just do it. Let's just have more Rani stories and see if we can expand this character. And you know, I mean, we'll be we'll be touching on another character soon who has facets that you can explore. So it's possible. You know, you can you can reintroduce kind of fan favorite baddies and kind of explore them. So yeah, I'm, I'm not in love with this performance, so to speak. But um, I don't think it's anybody's fault really. It's just that this version kind of doesn't stick out to me as much as the other one did. 
Yeah, it. I mean, I suppose the in the mark of the Rani, time in the Rani, her frustration comes with her minions not being as intelligent or quick witted or whatever you want as she is um and i guess that that is kind of missing here um there's definitely still that sort of superiority complex it just comes out in different ways i think so we have reached the end of this first trilogy and i am going to put you on the spot and make you pick a favorite story from three oh it's widow I mean, it's just even if you... Because I, I feel like until we have a conclusion to this, you can't really um, evaluate the stories that well. Uh, Widow, I think, is the one that works best on its own just because it has that comedy element, which you don't often get in Doctor Who. So it's just... It's something to really appreciate, I think, when it's done well. Like, comedy is really hard. So it's the, the fact that that is kind of this frothy bubbly thing excuse me um yeah really makes it stick out regardless of whether i've got criticisms about how they handle the arc yeah that one (laughs) yeah i think i'd agree with you it's it does comedy very well and doctor who can do comedy well it has done comedy well many times but this is if i wanted to go and listen to a Doctor Who story that I would find funny, this is probably the one I would pick over anything else. This would probably be the go-to. Yeah. So our second trilogy is the Locum Doctors trilogy. Um, So it was to celebrate the 200th main monthly, whatever you call it, range release. Um, And it was an interesting concept. Let's take the three doctors from this range and put them into essentially stories from previous doctors so you literally had the seventh doctor appearing in the third doctor's place and having an adventure with joe grant and unit um i thought it's quite a good idea i quite like that it's it's something big finish sort of have played with a few times since uh, and are certainly going to be doing with once and future it would seem sort of this doctor outside of their own era thing i guess you know we get it with dalek universe as well when the 10th doctor goes back to before the time war and starts sort of playing in terry nation's toy box um so yeah I, i i i think it's it's a pretty solid idea for a trilogy it's it's a nice way to celebrate and it's a good excuse to bring companions that you don't normally see in the monthly range and at the time didn't really get at all outside of companion tentacles no. um into this um so yeah we've there's a bit going on there's you know the crossover of eras there's how companions react to a different doctor um and the whole idea of the trilogy is it examines how different doctors react to a situation in different ways. The whole point of it is the seventh doctor would do something that the third doctor wouldn't, and so on. Um, so the first of these three stories is The Defectors, um, which is, as I've said, the seventh doctor sort of going 
right into the unit era. I kind of feel as though this is fairly solid season nine fodder. It'd go in somewhere, you know, between Curse of Peladon and Sea Devils or something like that, maybe. Um, and it's it does what it does. It's a fairly traditional third Doctor story, albeit with the seventh Doctor as the Doctor. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, I definitely think season nine is is about right um, because it's it's a moral dilemma kind of thing, and the third Doctor is sort of all over that. I mean, he's got the Silurians and the Sea Devils, and in this one, you've got a fairly interesting idea of um, aliens who've been abused by humans, and they are in turn kind of mistreating the humans who mistreated them. So you have a question of sort of who does the Doctor help? Um, and as a story, it has a lot of novelty value because for the Seventh Doctor, this feels, for the most part, basically like a bit of a jolly. Like, obviously, all of this is, you know, dangerous and exciting and important to Joe and would have been to the Third Doctor. But for the Seventh Doctor, somehow, it's just such a different playing field that you kind of think he's sort of above this kind of thing. Like, he'd, he'd sort it out in 10 minutes, you know, just with a bit of jiggery-pokery. Um so there's a lot of fun to be had there and it it is nice having him hang around with joe because they've got such a different kind of relationship because with joe and the third doctor it was such a clear cut kind of she basically loves him you know and it's it's just he's obviously beams with pride because he's got joe around he doesn't always treat her very nice but the third doctor and joe is a tremendously affectionate relationship so seeing the seventh doctor in that context is quite striking and nice odd it's odd definitely but it's sort of pleasantly odd um but i mean as a story it it sort of takes a while to kind of get to the really interesting stuff it sort of has a very a couple of striking images you know there's a thing about a pub full of dead people um which incredibly is is used for the cliffhanger of parts one and two effectively which i think is a very (laughs) unusual little uh little bugaboo um yeah it's it all leads up to a kind of you know moral dilemma's got to be paid off that's that's the point of a moral dilemma so you end up with a a big scene where the doctor's effectively got to choose between sacrificing the tardis and rest and himself presumably and um rescuing these aliens or not and I, it's interesting the way they handle it because they kind of, in order to offset the fact that these aliens have been mistreated, they kind of make them as aggressive as possible. I mean, they're horrible, right? And they've they've got every right to be, you know, but they're very unpleasant, and that really gets Joe's goat. She doesn't like them at all. Um, so when push comes to shove, Joe basically gives them the heave-ho and, and steps in the way and, and prevents the Doctor from doing this thing, which is a very Joe thing to do. You know, you look at the demons and she sacrifices herself to stop the uh, Zal from killing the Doctor. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's one of those things where it feels right for the character, but I'm not sure it really makes sense like in what it's trying to achieve. Because basically she's sentencing these aliens to death, right? That's her intention. Um, it turns out they haven't died because of that, but that's what she's doing. She's going, I don't want this to happen to you, Doctor. Therefore, I will let all of these aliens be destroyed. Um, 
And I think an additional reason that's given to her is that she wants to protect the people who are still on this island. And I think by this stage in the story, it's been confirmed they're actually dead or they're, they're going to die. So I think the moral dilemma gets a little bit muddled at the end there when it comes to actually pay it off. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not too fond of Joe in that, that situation. I kind of think, whoa there. We're, I know these aliens aren't very nice, but uh, did we have to do that? And then they survive, but they get shot by unit. So I'm not sure what to take away from that, to be quite frank. Uh, sh- should I be glad they're dead? I don't know. <laughs> I think it um, it's kind of undone by what it has to do mm-hmm. for the sake of the ongoing arc of this trilogy. Yeah. Um, you know, you need that do-you-push-the-button kind of situation for the Doctor. Um, Absolutely. For reasons that we will discover in A Secret History. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it, it's kind of forced into a corner where it has to set up this mm. slightly odd moral debate. And I think maybe that that's that's the main thing that lets it down because otherwise you do have quite an interesting story that does sort of echo the demons and I guess the first episode's a little bit uh, Android Invasion as well and yeah. you know, the, the sort of really strong setting up a mystery first episode that I mean, it's something Terry Nation did incredibly well Yeah, and it's it, it is kind of definitely riffing on that sort of thing here um, I'm not sure it uses unit in the best way it could have done, and it, it, but ultimately, it's a pretty solid story. It's a really solid idea, and it is really nice to get that Seventh Doctor and Joe into play that you wouldn't have got anywhere else. Um, yeah, it, it's. I think it's it's kind of let down because of what it has to achieve. Yeah, I wonder if it if it didn't have that, if it could play out. A bit differently, but... but alas, we are we're in a trilogy. We're at the start of a trilogy, so it's got to do what the trilogy's got to do. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's not a story I have any real problem with. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit difficult to understand what the aliens are saying. It's sort of the the sounds very heavily treated to make them sound alien. Yeah, I guess there's there comes a point when you've used 503 alien effects where it's kind of like, oh, we've got to do a new one. And, you know, maybe this was more of a swing and a miss. Um, but, I mean, uh, this is the second time I've heard it, so I think I picked up on what they were saying this time. But it is a little tricky, got to be honest. Yeah, and that kind of undermines the moral debate a little bit further, I guess, because you're not 100% sure what the aliens are actually saying and therefore because it's so difficult to follow their dialogue, it's difficult to follow their viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, you could, well, it would be a very different story, but you could lean into that and kind of be like, well, we didn't really understand their intentions, so that's why things went wrong. But uh, I don't think they intended it, so oh well. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's for what it... What it immediately sets out to do, which is put the Seventh Doctor into a Season 9 unit story, it works pretty well. And as I've said, you get a bit of demons, you get a bit of android invasion, you get a bit of ambassadors of death, Silurians. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Yeah, and it feels like it could be kind of towing into that sort of Malcolm Hulk, uh, kind of both sides might have a point thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like Joe is our is our kind of emotional way in to stories like this. And if she thinks the aliens are a bit dodgy, then I feel like that is the intention. But yeah, and it's. I mean, I've I listened to. Um completely unrelated story but listen to the green life recently oh yeah and sort of it it features obviously an older joe this is joe jones in sort of the uh the late 2010s early 2020s and she's sort of very determined that everything deserves to live regardless of anything at all in that you know life is the most important thing and even the even the maggots from the green death deserve a chance basically so it kind of yeah the the the, the viewpoint joe takes in this doesn't quite match up with the viewpoint we see from joe in quite a lot of other things well i mean you could argue that she's probably matured by then i mean yeah. that's that's a nice evolution i mean she's certainly um just a, a quick tangent Joe is not the most receptive person to aliens and alien worlds and stuff. She does an awful lot of, it's horrible. And, uh, you know, I, I always get the impression with Joe that she doesn't particularly want to go to alien planets and things like that. You know, she'd really, really much rather just kind of hang around with unit. So <clears throat> I, I haven't heard that release. Uh, you're mentioning, I actually haven't heard any Torchwood releases, bombshell, but, um, <laughs> I'd like the idea that Joe would come around to that. I wonder how much of that is Katie Manning kind of saying, well, you know, I, I know Joe pretty well and I reckon she'd feel like this now. Because that sounds a lot like Katie Manning yeah, in a nice way. Or, or maybe we've just invented a completely unintentional character arc. If you take these two <laughs> random releases, then you can see how a character develops over the course of 50 years. Well, um, well done, big finish. You've, you've yes. fixed Joe. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on then uh, to the second release in this trilogy uh, it is Last of the Cybermen uh, which is a second Doctor Jamie and Zoe story but it's the sixth Doctor in it instead of the second mm. um, it's the biggest problem I have with this one is it takes too long for the Cybermen to turn up I get that it's going for the whole Tomb of the Cybermen, they don't actually turn up till halfway through thing. Sure. But it's it, it's called Last of the Cybermen, and there's a big Cyberman's helmet on the cover. And I, I did find myself listening to it kind of going, can we just get to the Cybermen now, please? Yeah. It's a, it's a sort of game of two halves, I think, this one. Um, I mean, it starts off... A, a bit of a retread and that's that's not really a criticism i think that's kind of what the defectors is doing as well you, the, the purpose of the the kind of assignment here to some extent is to basically have a wander around in a different setting or an older setting so for an episode or two this does feel like we're kind of going oh weren't those cybermen stories like creepy and fun although it's you know as as you say it's kind of in the build-up where you don't actually have cybermen um then for the second half, it gets really complex. And um, I really like that it does that because, you know, that's more interesting than continuing with a sort of jolly holiday 
in uh, in an old Doctor Who story kind of thing, uh, because the whole complex time loop thing that it does is really nothing like the Troughton era. That's very much a modern Doctor Who contrivance. Um, so I like that it does it, but I have to be honest, I can never follow it. So I get very confused by the last episode, and that's probably on me. But I just get a bit befuddled following this one, but appreciate the ambition of it. Yeah, we end up in sort of timey-wimey territory, which 60s Doctor Who never did because 60s Doctor Who 100% of the time had it that the Doctor could not control the TARDIS. Yeah. You know, there was no revisiting a location or, you know, a very, very big chunk of the 60s was trying to get the companions back home and failing. Mm. Um, So it's it kind of... It, it kind of gives you that two episodes of 60s comfort and then does kind of drag it away from you. And I think that's an interesting use of the uh, sort of the um, the idea of this trilogy. It's, you know, the first one we got was, without a doubt, a pretty comfy season nine story. Mm. Whereas this starts off as a pretty comfy season six story and then does pull the rug out from under you and does something different. And it's the fact that it does something different that kind of creates the dilemma that the trilogy is sort of pointing towards. So, hmm. yeah, I I do think the way that that sort of how would a different Doctor act in this situation thing is used here in a completely different way to it is in Defectors. And I, I do think that works quite nicely. Um, and, of course, in the second half, we do get some pretty solid Cyberman action as well. Yeah, and it's it's also got some uh, really nice little character moments where the Sixth Doctor is kind of, well, I don't know what the word is, but he's kind of, you know, dreading the future that Jamie and Zoe have to look forward to, or sort of lamenting it, I suppose, because um, they're going to have their, their memories mostly wiped and, you know, wind up back where they started. And... That's nice to kind of touch. <laughs> That's not nice. It's horrible. Um, but it's 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 an effective use of mixing up the characters to have him come at this from the future and say, you know, I'm sorry that happened. But yeah, it's, it's good to kind of analyze the characters from different directions like that. And that's something that the three stories handle quite differently. And I think that's to their credit that they've all got a different approach to this. So you're saying, you know, <clears throat> Defectors is pretty much third doctor story plus sylvester mccoy that's fine that's a valid approach to this gimmick uh this one is a bit more complicated but um yeah i like that in in the kind of storm of kind of weird plot stuff going on it does pause to um reflect on the characters uh the cybermen themselves uh they've got a strange voice in this one is it just me like they've they've got a slightly different vocal effect on them which I feel like is slightly undermined by the character of Lanky, who's this part converted Cyberman, um, which is a great idea. You know, the idea of a, a Cyberman who's not entirely there. We've seen a few of those over the years, um, who's sympathetic. And that's 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 fine. That's something good to work with. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think he's a bit too much of a comedy character. Um 
so that by the time we reach the actual Cybermen and they've got quite similar voices, not the accent because he's got a Lancashire accent, hence the name. Um, but yeah, I feel like if you're going to use that vocal effect, maybe don't do Lanky or <laughs> I don't know. By the time the normal Cybermen appeared, that was kind of all I could hear was like, they sound a lot like Lanky. <laughs> so I struggled a bit with them, to be honest, once they arrived. I mean, it, it's I've always found Big Finish's Cybermen to be pretty inconsistent, but again, mm. that's consistent with Cybermen on screen. They've always been inconsistent. It, in the 60s, Cybermen sounded as they did based on director, who was available on the week, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, we even have Cyberman voices change throughout the course of the wheel in space. They sound completely different <laughs> in one episode to how they're doing the rest of it. Yeah. So, in some sense, inconsistent sounding Cybermen is perfectly fitting for the era. It probably makes sense for them as monsters as well. You know, I mean, they yeah they we can see that they look different every time or almost every time so i think it has to be assumed they are constantly modifying so there's nothing wrong with them changing their voices up now and again just um yeah like i say just that that particular choice of characterization kind of undermines it for me so i can't yeah. i can't even really remember the cybermen in it all i can particularly remember is lanky but uh you know, like I say, interesting idea for a character. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's probably the most we've ever explored a partially converted Cyberman at all, actually. Let's let's move on to the final story then, um, which I think absolutely pulls off everything it sets out to do. And it's got a lot to achieve, this story. It needs to tell us what the hell's going on with this trilogy. It needs to give us a conclusion to it, but it also needs to be a first Doctor story that happens to have Peter Davison as the Doctor alongside Stephen Vicky. Yeah. So it's doing what the other two stories did, but it's also a season finale, and it kind of it kind of plays this in a way that it, it it's almost a three-parter and then a one-parter. Sure. Um, the first three parts are very, very much a First Doctor historical. It, it You know, it, it, it it's almost exactly the Reign of Terror and the Romans and all that kind of thing. It's, you know, it's even set during a period of Roman Empire. So... It's very sort of very familiar ground for fans of sixties Doctor Who, mm. um, and I, I think the Fifth Doctor is absolutely brilliant in this. I, I do think the Fifth Doctor and the First Doctor do have a lot of similarities. I could argue for a long time that there's a lot of very similar characterization going on there, anyway. Mm. But um, that 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 just means this works really well. It's the Fifth Doctor isn't so much a fish out of water as the sixth and seventh doctors were in the two previous stories. Um and that that kind of works really well because then eventually we get to the point where the big dilemma comes up, which is at the end of the third part, and the fifth doctor 
does something different, whereas the sixth and seventh didn't in the end. Hmm. So I really like the fact that it's it's the Doctor that's most similar to the Doctor whose position they've been put in that actually does the different thing. I think that's really nice, and I think that's really clever. Um, and then we get this episode of essentially solving the storyline where the monk is now in the doctor's shoes and it it's it's kind of mad it's kind of bonkers but it, it's it's a lot of fun and it's a great way to conclude this trilogy um so so what are your thoughts on it um well i really liked it um you know agree with everything you said there i i would add though that actually i find that it highlights the difference as well between the fifth doctor and the first doctor so absolutely they've both got in common that they're kind of more prone to kind of flaws and mistakes than the average doctor i think they're sort of leaning more towards human uh and what this does is i sort of struggle with the fifth doctor a lot of the time like he's he's never my favorite on television but in audio you know peter davison's really great and it's a lot of the scripts are just very strong for him and this one i think underlines that the fifth doctor has this kind of duty of care feeling about him where it's like, well, the reason he finds himself quite often sort of captured by baddies or, you know, just really disappointed by the people around him is he really, you know, he's he's considering the impact of everything that's happening around him. And I think that's something the First Doctor doesn't necessarily do as much. He's a bit more impulsive. He's a bit more authoritarian. So he kind of expects, like, well, everyone's going to listen to me because I know more than they do. Uh, he's he's a right pain. <laughs> First, I'm going to love him, but he's he's really um, a bit full of himself. And I think that probably is how we end up with the the cliffhanger where the Fifth Doctor does something wrong. I mean, it's it's a moment of inaction basically that that kind of causes the divergence. And you know, the first doctor is not afraid to just run up and like hit somebody with a stick or something. Whereas I think the first, the fifth doctor is much more concerned just generally, but with how things are going to play out, who it's going to affect and things like that. So I think of these three stories, it's the best one for examining what is the difference between these two characters? And is there a link? Is there, is there like a thematic reason you would want to compare these two? And absolutely there is. Um, and I also really love that uh, the way it handles the companions as well, because that's another thing that each of these stories has to do. They have to have the question of how are they going to react to the Doctor being a different person? And they all do it a bit differently. So in The Defectors, um, Joe basically doesn't believe it's him, or that seems to be the idea. She calls him Doctor anyway, but you know she seems a bit unclear on whether or not it's him. Uh, in Last of the Cybermen, Zoe kind of goes along with it, but Jamie's not too sure. And in this one, Stephen and Vicky basically get it. They just kind of go, oh, okay, well, the Doctor's pretty weird. I guess that could happen. And I really like that because it, I think it credits them with intelligence or with, with more kind of, you know, wit and wisdom than, uh, than the other stories necessarily do with their companions. Because I think, he, you know, the Doctor is unknowable to you so the idea that he could be in some sort of situation where he's replaced by somebody else and his behavior should acquit him and be like yeah that's him i really think you know vicky and steven are very sharp characters generally so i think it's absolutely right that they would be like 
yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going along with this. And I think the story in general is just, you're right, it's, it's an incredibly first doctory story, but it doesn't feel like we're kind of going for a fun little stroll in it as we are with the other two. It's more of a, well, let's just have a good one. Let's have a good first Doctor story. And, and, you know, it happens to be the case that we're doing all this funny stuff with the fifth Doctor. Um, so you have the thing where the companions each end up in separate situations. Um, Stephen ends up as a chariot rider, you know, which seems like the sort of thing, yeah, Ian would probably have ended up doing that at some point if they'd gone here. Yeah, um, yeah and eventually we, we kind of, Oh, and I should say, like, as, as regards it being a, a traditional First Doctor story, it is, but it does have giant floating Medusa heads in it. So it does kind of lean fantastical as well. But I think that's kind of more the extended media tend to do that with the First Doctor. I think, uh, you know, audios and novels tend to kind of go, well, let's take the, the historical thing, but we can also be a bit weird with it. But I, I like that. I think the Hartnell era maybe would have done that if they had some money. So, <laughs> yeah, I think the Hartnell era is, well, being the first era, it is by definition the one that had the fewest resources available to yeah. it uh, in terms of, you know, technology, budget, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, um, even, you know, Doctor Who not really quite knowing what it wanted to be at that stage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Totally agree with you there. How did you how did you find the monk? Because that's an interesting one. It's not a cliffhanger reveal. It's he's not on the cover. Well, I think there's probably a bloke in a monk's habit on the cover, but um he's he's not named in the cover, you can't see his face. And in kind of mid episode three, they're just like, Oh, this character's actually the monk, by the way. Uh, if I recall correctly, it genuinely was left as a surprise mm. for the listener. There was some genuine speculation as to oh well who's who's putting the doctor in these situations at the time. Yeah. Uh, I think the monk was kind of always the favourite, uh, and I think Graham Garden in the cast list of this one pretty much confirmed <laughs> it. That would be a spoiler, um, wouldn't it? Oh, that there's a monk on the cover, and the bloke that plays the monk is uh, in the cast. Um, yeah, it, it's a pretty easy two and two to put together. Yeah. But nevertheless, yeah, it, it was saved as a surprise. It was it was there for you to work out. It was pretty easy to work out, but confirmation hmm. actually came with listening to the story, and it wasn't just a case of calling it the secret history of the monk. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not um, as if the, you know, knowing that, I don't think knowing that spoils it because it's an interesting story and an interesting use of the monk. So even knowing it's him, you know, is just the contrast of him and the Doctor is kind of what it's about. So they kind of really dive into the fact that he's got this bizarre outlook on on time travel where he's like, no, I think things could be better. And he's coming at this because of stuff that happened to him with the Paul McGann stories. And when you talk about these, these this trilogy kind of in, in forum land. The, I think the perceived wisdom is you need to go off and listen to that Paul McGann stuff, which I have heard, but I don't think you need to. I, th I think it's enough to know that he's utterly broken by something that happened to him one time, and he blames the Doctor for this, and he just wants to ruin the Doctor's life for it. Um, and, you know, none of the other characters in the story know what the hell he's talking about, so I don't think it's uh, 
I don't think it breaks anything if you don't happen to know what he's talking about. But it's it's just such an interesting motivation for him because he's he's never been evil, and he's doing all of this basically because he's had his heart broken, and he he doesn't possess the kind of self reflection to understand that he kind of made it happen. So he's just taking it all out on the doctor. And I love the way that the story, when it does this crazy thing in part four, where he kind of usurps the doctor for a while, it kind of just really highlights what kind of character the doctor is, whether it's, you know, whichever one. The way the doctor operates, I think, is kind of celebrated in this story. Like, like the you know, the fact that he makes these choices and, you know, sometimes because of the precise kind of doctor he is, he might do it differently. But I really love the way this feels like a kind of anniversary story. And it, I know it's 200 for Big Finish, but this is this would be a really solid kind of milestone story for Doctor Who, I think, because the kind of person the Doctor is, is crucial to this. And the kind of person the monk is throws that into really interesting kind of relief. Yeah, it's. I mean, the concept is basically the Doctor makes situations better regardless of which Doctor he is, regardless of how mm. he acts. He goes in and he makes things better. He, he, And I think that is ultimately the best way to celebrate 200 monthly mm. range Doctor Who releases. You're right. It, it, it's nice. It's it's so it's it's a landmark story, but it's fairly low key about it. It isn't. Let's put five doctors, Daleks, Cybermen, Yeti, Raston Warrior robots into the Death Zone. It's let's just you know let's just appreciate while we're all here. It's this character, um, and yeah, I I do like how that works, and I like the fact that it. It sort of goes, you know, every Doctor is different, but every Doctor is working towards the positive, working towards improving any given situation. Yeah, and he can't make it perfect. I mean, they make that, you know, sadly clear that it's it's just the monk's thing is just, well, I can just keep tweaking things until they're perfect and he's wrong. Whereas the Doctor knows that you can do the right thing in the moment. There's always going to be, you know, collateral damage, unfortunately. So yeah, it's 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 a sort of sad reality that the Doctor has, but it's better. Yeah, absolutely. So I suspect that we're going to have the same answer for this. <laughs> uh, but what's your favourite of the trilogy? Oh, I think by a smidge, it might be a secret history. Yeah, or the secret history. Got the title wrong. Um, no, it's it's just it's just a it's a banger. I mean, yeah. it's just a really strong one. It's. The, it's the fact that it has so much to do, the fact that it's a bit of a bonkers concept to start with, and it still manages to be a very excellent story. It's a very good first Doctor story. It's a very good Doctor mm. Who story, um, and everyone just seems to be on top of the game. And it's, yeah, I, I, it's really, really enjoyable, and it's a very satisfying conclusion to this sort of mini three-story arc. Mm. And... As you said, it's also um, it also works very well as a bit of a, a milestone celebratory release as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's because it's where it's low key because Big Finish is uh, they do you know a, a lot of fairly celebratory stuff, and we've got another one coming up, and it's nice that you can have this kind of smaller version 
Like, yeah. You know, I'm I'm all for that. You know, finding finding a kind of small way in to celebrate things or to highlight what's important. Yeah, let's go with that. I mean, who knows? Once in future might be all over that. We'll see. We will indeed. Roll it on. Uh, well, it's been absolutely great talking to you about these two. I mean, the two very notable trilogies. They are, mm. you know, they, they they both kind of do something with the idea that this is a trilogy and there's an arc going on. And yeah, yeah, I, I do, I do appreciate both of them, and there's some good stories in there and lots of good stuff to find. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back on sometime soon to talk about even more Big Finish monthly range trilogies. Why not? There's plenty of them. Because they did do a few. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we shall end then. Uh, so a big, big thank you for joining us, Gareth. Thank you. It's been really fun. It's been great to have you on. And uh, we'll be back for more podcasting next week. Goodbye now. See you around. Mm-hmm.